Good afternoon, listeners and viewers. This is Ron Stefanski from Disrupt Ed, where we talk about the ginormous amount of disruption that's going on in the world at large. And as proponents of stakeholder capitalism, we look at a number of things in this disruption. We look at issues of sustainability. We look at issues of uh, democratizing things, access to education, to food, to clothing, to the basic necessities and people's basic human rights. I am joined today by a rock star guest, someone full disclosure who I've known for over 20 years and had the privilege of working with in a former life. Rick Manzura is currently the CEO of Freight Farms, and what we're going to talk today about is the issue of food security in this disrupted world we're talking about. Rick has uh, been one of those people who I would describe uh, not as a CEO who came up with an idea and was the entrepreneur. He's the rocket launcher. He's the one that entrepreneurs go to when they want to take the company and uh, launch it um, in a big way. So prior to Freight Farms, Rick enjoyed a role as the co-CEO of Panera and then moved on to Wahlburgers and, and turned both of those into uh, food industry juggernauts. And now recently has joined two entrepreneurs, Brad McNamara and John Friedman, who are doing hydroponic farming uh, in, in urban settings and developed the whole idea behind uh, freight farming and uh, container farming. And so, Rick, thank you for joining us today on the show. It's great to see you. It's great to have you here. Thanks. I, I appreciate the kind introduction. And, of course, it's always great to catch up. Yeah. And so it's also great to see you carrying your Southwest theme into your Boston office. So um like to see that rootedness. But um, listen, so take us through this. You know, you had ample opportunities after your foray at Panera and Wahlburgers to do any number of things. And now you're working with this startup that has blossomed since you've joined it. You're now in, what, 47 states and 39 countries. Uh, so tell us a little bit more about how you came to work with Brad and John and maybe a little bit more about the story behind Freight Farms. Sure. So, um, um, starting with me joining, and then I'll go backwards to the story of freight farms. Um, uh, you know, I, as you said, had the opportunity to do a lot of to do a lot of interesting stuff with a lot of interesting people. But um, along the way, I've also had the opportunity to to um, have three very great, very gracious, and I'll I'll say somewhat woke children. A couple of them in particular. And um, my middle daughter uh, came to me one day and essentially said, hey, dad, way to live the capitalist dream. But when are you going to do something for the planet and for our future? And, you know, there's a Native American proverb that that really has struck a chord with me. That's uh, we don't uh, inherit the earth from our ancestors. We borrow it from our children. And, um, you know, working at Wahlburgers, a great, great experience. But of course, selling hamburgers there are all of the environmental impacts of methane etc with cattle production um so that was getting more and more on my mind during my stint there as part of the reason why we were one of the early adopters of impossible uh, foods and the impossible burger so anyway when john and brad approached me about this opportunity i just loved um the fact that 
their core mission was around democratizing access to food and um, also providing hyper local sustainable sources of food where you could eat anywhere, anytime. Um, but I'm a business guy, so it was still important to me that it actually was um, a business model that made sense. Um, and that's what I saw when I came here. And, um, you know, that's partly because I had the opportunity <laughs> to miss a lot of the hard knocks and pain that go with being a startup. So that takes me to, you know, the story of Freight Farms. Um, John and Brad connected around 2010 with um, uh, a shared desire to address urban food deserts. And their first idea was to attack it through rooftop gardens. But it didn't take long to realize that's a pretty hard thing to scale, getting everybody agree to provide access to their roof, set up the garden, right. harvest the garden, manage it during um, the brutal Boston winters, et cetera. So I think it was primarily John who somewhere around 2012 had this light bulb idea of seeing all of these used shipping containers lying around doing nothing. And uh, he came from an industrial design background and designed bioreactors for Merck and sort of thought, hey, you, you could put LED lights in, in this and some airflow and some climate control and you ought to be able to grow, um, ought to be able to grow plants. And maybe that's a better way to address the problem. So anyway, they uh, sort of started picking shovel and hammers and, and um, sort of DIY'd the first unit of what was in the leafy green machine that launched in 2013. And um, anyway, fast forward now, we've been through eight different um, iterations of the farm We've moved from using used shipping containers, which had all sorts of issues uh, around no two are exactly alike, plus they're just not designed to grow food, to where we've developed a lot of our own technology, 11 different patent families, hardware, software, nutrients that are all specifically designed to optimize growing of crops. So it has specialized airflow, specialized insulation, um, specialized ducting, um, specialized HVACs. And uh, as you said, we've now grown to be, um, you know, the world's largest IoT connected community of commercial farms. We're actually up to 49 states now. Yep. Um, and we just sold to our 40th country. So it's cool because that number Every every time I go into a presentation, we have to update our last set of numbers. That's wonderful. Um, so uh, I I think the um, the coolest thing to me about the job so far has really been that global community of farmers. We now have over a thousand of them spread all over the globe, and um, you know at a time when there are so many of these po national political issues, and we see the issues with the Ukrainian war, et cetera. Um, to see all of these people around the world that are joined in common cause, sharing their experiences, sharing their pain, sharing their successes, different ways to um, uh, create, you know, more productivity uh, from the farms, um, but all sort of bonded together in this common belief that we need to find better ways to feed the planet um, with limited soil, limited water, um, limited resources. Um, it's just been super gratifying. I can imagine. So kudos to your uh, middle daughter for uh, bringing you into this whole world. I have to say, you know, to our listening and viewing audience at Disrupt Ed, I use this word a lot. 
Um, when I talk about IoT initiatives and advanced manufacturing, or now we're talking about it as applied to the food industry, I am literally gobsmacked by what you guys have done. So I'm hoping that in the final version of our audio and visual uh, recording today, we'll be able to share with you a little bit of the visual behind it. Because when I saw the video behind how this container farm works, it is truly spectacular. So what you're saying is this was an iterative process that went through many, many uh, DIY sort of uh, innovations before it got to this point. But maybe you can talk to why I'm so gobsmacked about it, which is the output and the use of energy is so highly efficient, right? Yep. That you need minimal water, you can do what, 100 times what a farm can do in the same amount of space? Do I have yep, it right? Yep, yep. And so I'll start because it sort of describes a lot of the value propositions with uh, the sustainability story. So we look at sustainability through through five pillars, uh, land conservation, water conservation, soil conservation, uh, eliminating transportation miles and energy use. And on four of those five, we're literally um, as good or better than any form of farming that's existed in human history, which is super wow. cool. That's so, cool. Um, to kind of go through them, um, uh, soil conservation, we're perfect conservers because we're a hydroponic solution, so we don't use soil at all. Um, water conservation, we're 99% less water than traditional agriculture. and 99%. Yeah, 99%. Um, you can run um, uh, a farm that's producing over a thousand heads of lettuce a week in uh, with less than five gallons of water a day. In fact, in humid environments, we actually um, are water positive, which means we're filling up the tanks as opposed to draining them. And that's through a combination of a closed loop hydroponic system that we have patents on and designed, but also a specially designed HVAC system that not only wicks transpiration from inside the containers, but it wicks humidity from outside the containers and brings it into the container. Uh, land conservation, you can produce um, uh, two and a half acres worth of crop production in an eight by 40 foot shipping container. So as you said, that's a hundred times more land efficient, which is obviously super important for where there is, um, is uh, minimal available land. But the other reason it's important is um, open land is one of our best um, uh, sources for carbon sequestration. So it frees up that land to also help us environmentally. And, um, and then where we really shine is transportation miles. You know, one of our mottos is move farms, not food. Um, part of the- Right, you're not transporting all this food, right? It's grown locally, it's grown within walking distance in some cases yep. and kind and of returning it to really truly farm to table where you grew it in the morning and you're uh, harvesting it in the uh, in the aftermath. Absolutely, and that's part of the reason, even though we've, we've moved to new um, specialty built containers, we've stuck with that eight by 40 foot um, form factor because cargo ships, uh, trucking lines, all forms of transportation have been designed, railways specifically, carry that container. So it's what makes us portable literally anywhere in the world. So, um, you know, lettuce in the U.S., over 90% of it comes from Yuma uh, or Salinas. So if you're like me on the East Coast or like you in Michigan, it's traveled thousands of miles. Um, uh, 
dealt with all that degradation and flavor, texture, nutritional value, um, product waste, and all of the carbon footprint of getting that from the source to the shelves. And it has that much more limited shelf life. So we address all of that. So, so the real um, remaining unlock for the industry is um, energy use. You do have to power the LED lights that supplies the energy for, for the growth in the farm. Having said that, renewables have come a long way. We have a partnership with Arcadia in the U.S. to supply clean energy to any farmer that wants it. And um, and there's been a lot of work that's gone on in just improving the energy efficiency of not only our farms, but any form of indoor ag. So uh, um, so you, you have that as part of the value prop, but the other value prop is it's a highly insulated standard container where everything's controlled through software. So anywhere in the world, you can grow the same crop in the exact same way, 365 days a year, because you're able to control climate, nutrients, et cetera, to um, produce very predictable, very precise output. That's amazing. Now, uh, just with full disclosure, Rick has been a mentor of mine for over 25 years now. And one of the things I was always impressed by in talking with Rick was that he's always about community. He was about community when it came to Panera. He was about community with the Wahlbergs and, and the Wahlberger chain. And now he's working on something that's truly community focused. So Rick, maybe you can walk me through, you know, there is such a huge need for sustainable farming, but who's paying the bill? Is this, you're, you're always, uh, balancing, as as you said earlier, as a business person, what's the business case versus what's the so, social impact of it? So, are are you? Who are the customers that are ultimately setting these up? Are these communities? Are these corporations? Where where are you finding that the business model uh, is is actualizing the growth that you're looking for as a company? Yep. So, um, one of the one of the things I love before I joined the company is how diverse the customer base is, and it's actually getting more uh, diverse. But it, it, if we talked about historically, they sort of generally split into seventy percent for profit small business farmers, and then thirty percent not for profit, which I'll talk about in a second. But for the small business farmers, um, they tended to be a lot like you know from my restaurant days. Um, the kind of folks who would want to enter a franchise like a Subway, where they wanted something that's fairly low cost to get into. It's pretty turnkey. Uh, a lot of the guesswork has been taken out of them, but they can kind of control their own destiny, run their own business, make a nice income, but also feel that sense of satisfaction from being a small business owner. Um, the one huge overlay for us, though, is, is they tend to be more mission driven. Um, uh, care more about environment and local access to food, et cetera. Um, one thing that is not a common denominator is an agricultural background. You know, as I mentioned before, one of our key tenants is democratizing access to food. So um, we try to create recipes where the software, you could say, I want to grow romaine lettuce. You put that in the software and the software will do all the work for you. Control the lights, control the climate, control nutrient delivery to a specified recipe. So all you need to do is sort of plant the seedlings, harvest, package, distribute, and then maintain the farm. Um, unless you want to experiment and 
we love it when people want to experiment because right. that's how we all learn and we right. all get better. So let me interrupt you for just a second. I want to I want to understand: Are these mostly greens that you're uh, producing, or are there other vegetables that you can then grow in this environment? Yep. So uh, leafy greens is a big part of it, and for anybody who follows controlled environment agriculture. Um, almost everybody looks at it through the lens of leafy greens and tomatoes. Um, having said that, part of um, you know our value proposition is you can grow some really hard to grow crops, specialty crops. Um, you can also be a lot more niche in what you grow. So we've actually had folks grow over 500 different um, varieties in our farms, including things like squash and pumpkins you wouldn't normally wow. associate with vertical farming. Um, right. And we've proven the viability of about 60 of those. Those 60 tend to be in the lettuces, leafy greens, microgreens, herbs, um, small intercropping root vegetables and flowers, and then a few other, as I mentioned, hard to grow specialty crops as well. You know, it's interesting to hear you talk about leafy greens. Uh, living here in downtown Detroit, my wife uh, started um, going to plant in Detroit where they uh, have hydro hydroponic farming and produce microgreens. And so I was immediately critical because of the cost factor. It's like, oh, my gosh, this is going to be really expensive. And in point of fact, the taste difference alone and the freshness was just extraordinary right so you're getting a better you know you're talking about the production values and and the efficiencies but you're also you're also improving without genetic engineering you're you're improving the yield right in terms of the quality of it yeah quality and i would say the other thing is uh well two things one the value proposition um keeps getting better every year as research our technology development our learnings from the farmer network continue to improve yields. Out of that same eight by 40 foot box, you can now grow two and a half times what you could have in 2015. And we're planning for another 30% yield improvement this year. So that all, of course, allows um, price to, to come down. But also for a lot of parts of the world, um, you know, we're the only option you have because it's an extreme climate or like in islands, where there's very limited um, available land and fresh water. So they're importing almost everything um, that they grow. So there we're actually a very cost competitive source, plus all of the additional values that come with, um, with what we're growing. Um, so that's, you know, the 70% historically has been small business on the for-profit side has been small business farmers. But as I mentioned, that's shifting and it's actually shifting to be a lot more institutionally oriented this year because that curve has has a made us more cost competitive. Um, but B, with COVID, with the Ukrainian war, um, chains, large institutions have found it very hard to have a consistent, secure supply of certain key lines of produce. So we're able to provide that. And you can be very consistent about the sort of price that those products are going to go for versus anybody who's followed the lettuce market recently that's gone from anywhere from a dollar and a half a head to $14 a head, depending on where you are, the supply chain problems. And again, from my restaurant experience, that's the, the issue there 
is not just what your absolute price is, but it's how predictable that price is because you can't be updating your menu on a daily basis. Right. And if all of a sudden you hit a commodity price spike, that can really um, screw you up. So that's a 70% for-profit. The 30% not-for-profit is where a lot of our cooler stories are. Um, uh, we have more colleges and universities with our commercial farms than anyone in the world, including folks like UC Davis, number one ranked plant and animal sciences um, department in the world. They use us for anything from um, uh, research to direct integration into their agriculture program to supplying the student cafeterias with fresh food to just being wow. sort of cool tech demonstration nice. project. Um, and then um, also in sort of quasi-academia research world, we've just done some super cool things with NASA on how to grow um, food remotely. We're working with Biosphere now on um, driving biodiversity with native seeds and a bunch of other really cool projects for those of us old enough to remember Biosphere back in the day. There's a really interesting documentary, by the way, on that. If you haven't seen it, it's it's pretty cool. And uh, CRISPR, which which works on genetics and in crops. So, um, and then the other side of what we do in not for profit is true community based organizations like Boys and Girls Clubs, where they just want to engage a population, give them an enrichment opportunity, do local food distribution. So. Um, you know, we push on everything we can do to help, whether it's drive economics or on the not-for-profit side, help create um, compelling programming, um, research opportunities, um, donor engagement materials, whatever it is. Now, I don't know if you remember this, Rick, but in our past, we were both at Borders together. Oh, sure. And we were hosting a lot of events. And Miss Waters from Chez Panisse had come out with a cookbook, and she came out to speak with us. And she was setting up uh, small farms in urban areas uh, to help students who uh, were in impoverished areas to actually understand the importance of fresh food and produce. One of her other themes in terms of what she was promoting was the the benefits of seasonal produce. So you don't eat, um, you know, certain uh, things. You you come to cherish them when they're at their peak of ripeness. You don't try to have a watermelon in the middle of winter. You don't have, you know, you have rhubarb in the month of June when it's, you know, most ripe. Does this, do you see that the food supply is going to adjust back to where it was, where we ate things more seasonally? Or because you're growing on a 365, are you just going to be able to provide a better quality of a diverse range of, of produce? Yep. So let me first say, I mean, Alice Waters, uh, complete rock star for those of us who came from the restaurant business. I'll, I'll hail her because a lot of a lot of the focus on local, organic, sustainable um, it really sort of stemmed from her and California cuisine. So anyway, shout out to uh, to Ms. Waters. Um, um, but to directly answer your question, actually, what we um offer is people to um, have the opportunity to be able to experience that seasonal produce anytime they want. Because we can say if, if, if one of the examples that gets used all the time in our industry is Tuscan basil, you know, at peak season, peak year, it's almost like a wine vintage where you could say, okay, if you can tell me what the climactic conditions were, and what was the composition of the soil? 
that created that perfect seasonal experience and regional experience, then we can create that so we can bring it to you anywhere. So you don't have to wait until spring to have spring vegetables. I would say I, I understand that that takes a little bit of the romance out of it, but it also, it's again, part of democratizing it because part of what we would like to do is, is, is say to the person in Alaska, your ability to consume what you want when you want it and have these elevated experiences and really get this sort of sensory experience somebody in central or northern California is going to get. You don't you don't have to fly there. You don't have to move to get it. We can help you get that same experience locally through this technology. So for those of you joining us, this is Disrupt Ed. And we're talking with Rick Van Zero from Freight Farms about the gobsmacking new technology IoT-based container farming business that he is responsible for growing beyond all recognition. So, Rick, what are the constraints on the growth? I mean, it just seems to me as you're talking about this that governments are, you know, and communities are going to be getting involved in this, especially where there are hot points for food uh, security issues. So in urban areas in, and then globally, those places where uh, there's war-torn strife or there's dislocation of a lot of people or the conditions are not just optimal for growing A hundred percent. I'd say we're already um, pretty engaged in government. We've we've been talking to um, a couple of senators at the national level. I would say federal moves at a different rate than than local. So where we've gotten a lot more of the traction is uh, locally. Here we've spent a lot of time with Mayor Wu's office on um, leveraging our farms to address food deserts in the city. Um, Mayor Lightfoot in Chicago has been somebody we've worked a lot with on um, her, um, you know, Western Chicago project and how we take advantage of open land with uh, freight farms. Uh, Mayor Duggan is is definitely on our radar. And actually here in Massachusetts, Governor Healy and Lieutenant Governor uh, Driscoll took a visit last week to Boys and Girls Clubs in Taunton to go work in our freight farms. And they actually harvested some of our greens. So um, there's a lot more support governmentally. We've actually tapped farmers here in Massachusetts into a couple of sustainability grants where they got their farms entirely funded through government grants. And we think we'll see more and more of that, particularly given the infrastructure bill um, has a focus on um, making sure we provide support to disadvantage. Yeah, no, I, I see that. And in the case of Duggan, just as a shout out, I think that Detroit is uniquely positioned to move into urban farming. His predecessor was uh, interested in kind of re- uh, settling people through the city and then taking over great expanses of land and and trying to turn it into farms back in the day. And this was probably 20 years ago now. And that plan did not work uh, because people didn't want to leave their homes. Duggan's come in and working with the land bank has repopulated areas by creating side lot programs, places where people could actually buy a vacant property next door and then turn it into something. So the possibilities for urban farming in an impoverished area like Detroit are just spectacular because 
uh, we do have a lot of insecure uh, food insecurity around the, around the city limits, and you see it all the time. So this is obviously a really, really uh, viable solution for that. Let's talk, you know, when we talk about disruption and, and gobsmacking, uh, uh, gobsmacking uh, technology, I, I want to hear the stories that you're facing when you're out in now almost uh, 40 countries. What are some of the things you're finding in terms of turning around food insecurity into food security in, in different communities? Yep. So, um, you know, we've we've just started to tap into um, Africa through Mauritius and, and in Cairo. Uh, Cairo were part of um, uh, really a very... Uh, complex multi-layered solution, which has us for some of those hard to grow specialty crops, um, uh, larger uh, enclosed environments, greenhouses and warehouses for crops that are more suited to that growing. And then they have some uh, some open farms. I would say part of the reaction we heard back was uh, to the comment you made about produce quality, there's eating and then there's eating. And, right. and right. if you're used to, to, if all you've been used to is eating imported produce and you actually have a chance to eat something that is fresh, it's like a, a totally different experience. So, um, you know, I think that's a good example of where we've really um, been elevating the experience. Um, up in Yukon in Alaska, um, we've, we've fed um, folks in mines that are pretty deep, very cold, very isolated. And again, to be able to, in the most extreme climates, be able to experience something fresh is, um, is awesome. Extraordinary, right? It's just extraordinary. Extraordinary. And then, um, you know, all sorts of different school projects that all have their own story behind them. I think one of the um, coolest is in, in Walnut Creek, they turned it over to a student club that, um, uh, their mission was, hey, you guys run this farm, you make a business out of it. So it's become this sort of self-sustaining That's <laughs> club. amazing. But, That's... Um, you know, you, you learn you learn economics while you're also being able to feed folks in the cafeteria and then take excess produce and go off and sell it to fund the operations of the farm. So they're just, um, you know, all sorts of cool stories. And then Lotus House, where we've, we've got... Um, you know, disadvantaged mothers and single mothers and children that need fresh food. They need engagement in Miami uh, where they take advantage of our farm. So it's really a, a wide spectrum and it's it's pretty cool to see. It's an amazing adventure you're on. It's it's really incredible. We have to thank and shout out to your, your middle daughter for convincing you that you needed to have an impact on the planet. And obviously you continue to do that and run a successful business at the same time. So to our listeners and viewers, this has been another episode of Disrupt Ed, where we've been talking with Rick Van Zurf from Freight Farms, understanding better the way in which technology and IoT is actually impacting food insecurity, not only here, not only in urban areas across the country, but globally. Thank you, Rick, so much for sharing with us today uh, your story at Freight Farms. And I guess I don't have to wish you sunny skies because you don't really need them, right, to continue your growth out there. So thank you so much, Rick, for being with us today. Thanks, Ron. I appreciate it. Bye.